Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Saturdays. Today is Saturday, February 10th, 2018. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. In the last presentation of this subject, Clifton Amheiser and I reached nearly to the end of part three of his original series of essays on the phony no-Satan dogma. There we discussed the idea of Adam and Eve as the devil, Adam and Eve being the devil, whether or not women have seed, and the paradoxes of scriptural interpretation that are created if the premise is accepted that the flesh of Christ, as well as the flesh of us all, is the devil, along with other aspects of this topic, which the ridiculous claims of those who believe that Satan or the devil is really only the flesh may pause us may cause us to ponder. So this evening we shall continue with our somewhat redacted version of Clifton's essays, picking up with Clifton's essays on the phony no Satan dogma, where we left off at the end of part three. And this is our third episode in this series. Hello, Clifton. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How are you feeling? Pretty fair. How's life in Florida? It's fine. Are you tired of running around the beaches yet? <laughs> I haven't even saw a beach yet. You haven't even seen a beach? But we'll get you to a beach soon. We yeah, will. Okay. <laughs> we just got to wait till um till spring break is over with. Yeah, right. Because the beach is crawling. I, I don't want to be here in spring break. If if I know what spring break is. Another yeah. subject that, that has come up in these essays is dualism. The people who deny that there is a Satan accuse us of believing in two gods, one good God and one evil God, which is also a ridiculous claim. But, but there is a problem here that has more than one dimension, as there are so-called two seed liners who do believe that there is a literal Satan in heaven, which is a ridiculous proposition. And that is an impediment to finding the truth of the matter. In your paper, at, at the end of part three of your essays, you, you quoted one proponent of the no Satan dogma as saying that the no Satan people continually condemn what they term as dualism. One of them made the remark, if Christianity is dependent upon a real Satan, then dualism is absolute. What do you think about that? Well, I disagree with it. Well, well, we understand that. I just didn't know if you had a comment or anything. You had um, quoted him as saying God's word is absolute. Well, of course it is. We we agree on that. But is, Christian, is Christianity dualism in the sense of two supernatural beings? Well, well we don't make that claim. Ironically, the ancient Persian religion of Zoroaster proclaimed an irreducible opposition between Ahura Mazda, the wise lord, and Angra Manu, the evil spirit. The first incarnates truth, righteousness, and order, while the later represents the lie, unrighteousness, and disorder. 
Now, now perhaps that's how the Roman Catholic Church interprets Satan. That, that's how the medieval church traditionally interpreted Satan. Yeah, probably. And, and some true sea liners have followed that. But it's not necessary to believe that and to be true sea line. The writer continues, and he says, historically, Christian dogma has denounced dualism as a heresy and condemned it repeatedly. I, I don't know where he gets that, because the Catholic Church always upheld, and, and the Baptist churches uphold the idea of this Satan that they blame all their problems on. Yeah, right. So how could this writer say that? He's not being accurate at all. You'll see so many, I see so many American Protestants that bad things happen to them and they say that Satan's getting them and Satan's doing it to them. <laughs> Maybe they're paying usury to a Jew and Satan's doing that to them, but they did it to themselves when they signed it dotted yeah, line. Right. <laughs> so you can't even blame Satan for that. He says that historically Christian dogma has denounced dualism as a heresy, which we find is not true, and condemned it repeatedly, not from the simple fact that there is a radical difference between good and evil or the sacred and the profane. No, the rejection is directed against the metaphysical or supernatural manifestation of some personage spoiling God's creation. And, and we would agree that there's no supernatural um, supreme being that, that's on the same par as God spoiling his creation. But there are satanic bastards all over the place. Yeah, you can go visit them uh, once in a while, actually. <laughs> where, where might you find them, Clifton? Well, uh, a jewelry store, for instance, uh, a bank. Uh, there, there's different places where you can visit visit them. Our writer says that this is the stuff of mythologies and superstitions, whereby the priestcraft inculcates a supernatural destroyer and tempter of man. If this Satan is the personification of cosmic evil and not the adversarial agency of man alone, then how can Christianity maintain a monotheistic position? And of course, we're two seed line, but of course we have a monotheistic position. Mm -hmm. You might want to... Um, to read some of your response to this writer. Again, this writer doesn't know what he's talking about. After researching in three encyclopedias, I gleaned that dualism does not only mean two opposing forces, but in the realm of the spirit among religious-minded people, such as body and soul, uh, but in the metaphysical, spiritual, and materialistic. So, so body as opposed to soul is dualism. Spiritual as opposed to materialistic is a form of dualism, right? Platonic dualism distinguished between a sensible and intelligent world an intelligible world. Intelligible world, yeah. Uh, Descartes. Descartes. That this Descartes, the French philosopher. Okay, Descartes. Dualism differentiated between thinking and uh, extended uh, substance. One form of philological dualism have been 
outlined by Leibniz and Kant. Uh, there's also the dualism of mind over matter. The term dualism was first coined by Thomas Hyde in 1700 on his uh, description of Zoroasterism. Yes, Zoroastrism is based on dualism, but so is the concept of spirit against the flesh in biblical dualism. So, so the point here is that Leibniz, Leibniz he, he was a metaphysicist from Germany, I think, in the 17th century. Leibniz and Kant and, and Descartes and, and all of these, Plato, they all had their own forms of dualism that they used in their philosophies to pit one concept or idea against another concept or idea. But the concept of spirit against the flesh, the spirit struggling with the flesh, is itself a form of dualism. The only way that a person could entirely avoid dualism is to cut off one ear, gouge out one eye, cut off one leg and and one arm, and ride around on a unicycle uh, with uh, with one pedal. And that would be a good trick. <laughs> Also, one would have to find a source where one could find, where one could purchase uh, paper with only one side. I have no idea what an uh, I don't know what my word is there. Extreme extremist, an extremist anti-dualist might use for one-sided toilet paper. <laughs> or what they are so um, of which, of which they, they are so desperately in need. Yeah, you know, Christ had an adversary, and and I'm sorry I don't have enough light in here for you. Maybe that's why you're having difficulty reading. Christ had an adversary, and and that adversary was of a different father than his own father. And, and that adversary was a, 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 an adversary that was never a, a, a candidate for conversion to Christianity. He didn't want them to believe him. That's why he spoke in parables. So, so is that not dualism? If people are either born from above or below, then that's dualism. If people are either sheep or goats, that, then that's a form of dualism or, or wheat or tares or the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Is that that's true biblical dualism? Right. That's dualism that the New Testament teaches us, and that Genesis teaches us very clearly. There is never in in all of these comparisons, there is never a third choice. So it must be biblical dualism. We reject the notion that Satan is in heaven. Right. Because Revelation chapter 12 tells us that Satan was cast out of heaven. And that old serpent was the Satan that was cast out of heaven. But when, heaven may not be what people conceived as heaven either. Well, well, right. It didn't necessarily have to be a place in the sky. It uh, could be a high place in society. or Right. It could be a high place. It could have been a high society. 
It could have been a, 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 an, a cultured civilization living by God's laws. And that could have been considered heaven. Or, or in the ancient Mesopotamian inscription, inscriptions, when they talked about heaven, they did talk about, they were referring to the, the seats of government and power and, and, and the buildings, the palaces of the kings and, and the temples of the priests. That was heaven. So heaven was used metaphorically in that sense in, in ancient Mesopotamian literature. So this Revelation chapter 12 doesn't insist that Satan fell out of the sky and, and fell down and plopped himself down on, on a rock somewhere and got up to walk around and cause trouble. <laughs> didn't come in the spacecraft. Even if Christ used the same metaphor in Luke chapter 10, it's only a metaphor. It's not necessarily something to be taken literally. Among the um, Dead Sea Scrolls, the scroll designated as 4Q204 is also known as 4Q Enoch C. It's a fragment of the book popularly, popularly known to us as One Enoch. Concerning this scroll, I, I wrote in the introduction to my commentary for Luke chapter 8 where I talked about Satan not being in heaven. And, and you would sent that out to your mailing list, I think, back uh -huh. then. Yet you would extracted that part and put it on your mailing list. That the, um, I, I wrote my commentary for Luke chapter 8 the following. From the Dead Sea Scrolls Study Edition, from the, from the scroll designated 4Q204, we read, Exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers which seems to have been speaking prophetically of, of something that's going to happen in the future. The watchers is a word used of certain angels, and, and that's evident in, in the Bible itself, in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, where, where three times he refers to angels and calls them watchers. And in Daniel chapter 4, in verses 13, 17, and 23, it should be without doubt that Daniel was referring to angels. Christ said, and, and I think you quote this later on in, the, in this um, paper, Christ said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 10, I beheld the adversary falling as lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you, and, and just as Revelation chapter 12 connects the, the fallen angels to Satan, which is the adversary, and, and, and to, to the old serpent, right? Christ does it here. Behold, I have given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions and upon all the power of the enemy. And no one shall by any means do you injustice. So there must be an enemy. And the power of the enemy must be the side of, the, of, of Satan fallen from heaven and the serpents and the scorpions. Isn't that dualism? <laughs> they aren't. Christ and his disciples, and Christ and his disciples aren't them. He didn't say, I give you authority to tread upon your own flesh. <laughs> this old devil stuff is nuts, but it's sad because it's they so prevalent. They were supposed to go out of the snake pit and, and trample on uh, uh, snakes and stuff like that. that oh, right. He wasn't talking about little snakes. He was talking snakes. about people. Right. He was sending them among people, not 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 out into to the wilderness to a nature farm <laughs> to find some serpents and scorpions. 
And, and then he goes on and he says, but you must rejoice. You must not rejoice that the spirits are subject to you. Rather rejoice that your names are inscribed in the heavens. So the spirits that are subject to the apostles are the spirits of those serpents and scorpions that he gave them power to tread on. Right. Because his gospel and his word is more powerful than their lies and, and their deception. That's the way I read that. Well, if a person uh, quotes uh, Bible and stuff like that, or uh, uh, they're, they're sort of treading on them today, too. Right. Here in the New Testament, there is a direct connection between demon spirits, the allegorical serpents and scorpions, which represent people in our modern world, and that Satan whose fall is depicted in chapter 12 of the Revelation which is also that old serpent that we know from Genesis chapter 3. This interpretation of Genesis is supported throughout the New Testament as Christ had come to other things. This is why it's not found in the Old Testament, because Christ came to other things which had been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Yeah. All of the parties are there in the Old Testament, the Kenites, the Rephaim, the, the Canaanites that, that mingled with the Kenites, the Edomites, they're the all there. Hittites. All of the Hittites, all of the parties are there, but the nature of the differences between the children of, of God and those other people isn't explained until the New Testament, where we see things kept secret from the foundation of the world. We find these explanations in Peter and Jude, in the Revelation, in the parables of Christ, the parable of the wheat and the tares. How can the no Satan advocates, how can they deny all of this evidence? And it's all dualism. It's our side and their side. And that must be the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Yeah. Maybe you can, maybe you want to introduce part four of this series. <clears throat> You're there, right at the top of the page. You got it. Um, as I demonstrated in the first three brochures in this series, the characters uh, professing this same erroneous theory of no Satan have little... Uh, comprehension of the various parts of speech in English, Greek, and Hebrew. So I found it necessary to give the reader a general refresher course in the various parts of speech in English. The one for which I didn't have space to do it justice was the Greek and Hebrew uh, substantive uh, and it is even more important and than all I discussed in the first paper. In that paper, I showed you how uh, one Satan denier falsely claimed that the name of Satan was a pronoun. Which is absurd. <clears throat> He might influence others who don't have the uh, resources 
to examine the validity of this inaccurate conjectures, his inaccurate conjectures. In my computer, I have what is called the LibreNex Digital Library System. In that system, there are several Bible versions, but the principal book, books in that collection are two versions of the Nestle Amman Greek New Testament uh, 27th edition, of which one is uh, an interlinear. The interlinear has four lines, the top being the Greek text. Under the Greek text is the Greek equivalent in English letters. The third line is uh, a translation by McReynolds from the NA27 Greek. The bottom or fourth line is an abbreviated code for each Greek word and and the parts of speech it represents. But the LibreNex uh, user doesn't even have to check uh, what the abbreviation depicts as all one need do is place the cursor near the Greek word at the bottom of the screen just below the taskbar it is a non-abbreviated readout of each part of speech. Therefore, I can go to any word in the New Testament and instantly determine its grammatical status. Not only do I have the NA27 by which to consult the Greek and of the New Testament, but I also have four different Septuagint Greek texts to refer to, and I can check the grammatical status of every word in the Old Testament. Did you want me to go further? For instance, all I need do is to determine the grammatical status of Satan at Revelation 12.9 is to go to the NA27 and place a cursor on Satan and the grammatical readout that I get is noun, masculine, singular, nominative. Uh, I can uh, go a step farther and right click and a window appears and I can select the select uh, selected reference noun, masculine, singular, nominative, and every word with that same grammatical status will appear in light blue throughout the entire New Testament, and all I have to do is scroll through it, and it will show every word that is noun, masculine, singular, nominative, and if there is no Satan, as they insinuate, Better than 90% of the people mentioned in the Bible do not exist either, including Joshua Christ himself. I would say probably 100% don't exist. If Satan's a noun and Satan don't exist, then none of the nouns exist, right? None of them are real. We're not real. Not only can I quickly determine the grammatical 
status of every word in both the Old and New Testaments, but I can du double click on nearly any word and it will automatically take me to several Greek and Hebrew lexicons for further explanations and data. In all the 20 times the name Satan is used in the New Testament, the NA27 does not designate it as a pronoun, as Downey claims. Uh, Not one single solitary time is Satan designated as a pronoun. Where do you see that? Right here. Yeah, okay, yeah. Not one single solitary time. So if there is, if there are others who think that they can simply pull some fanciful idea out of the clear blue sky, basing it on an inaccurate use of the English, Greek, and Hebrew, Remember, there are others who have such software and can quickly determine whether or not the speaker or writer has done his homework on the subject. But there are, the, but there is one problem with the NA27 uh, in the LibriNex Digital Library. While the grammatical status can be found. For every word, it will not designate a substantive, uh, substantive, which is a group of words which can, uh, which make the subject a noun. And, and that's part of the feature of, of those interlinears and, and Bible works and other tools that will tell you the particular part of speech a word is being a, a word a word is in, right? whether it's a noun, an adjective, an adverb, that they can't tell you the more advanced features of grammar, su such as the substantive or, or the hendiotis or, or um, what types of clauses or, or predicates or things like that, that those things that those those tools are great to have but they're limited in that they're not going to tell you all the features of the grammar, of the language. You, you really have to study grammar to understand that. And, and here you reprinted something that I wrote, and, and that is, um, what is a substantive? It's an explanation of the substantive. I don't remember writing that. I don't remember if I wrote it for you for this paper or, or if you copied it from somewhere else, it's really not important, but, but I'm not even, I, I don't even remember it, but I'm going to explain it. <laughs> anyone who really wants to be, and this is Clifton's words, and anyone who really wants to be aware of what scripture is asserting needs to know the grammatical parts of speech of each single word, plus the substantive formed by a group of words. That's one other feature of grammar that's not explained in your concordance or in your interlinears. When one is reading their Bible, one might theorize in his mind that it is plain English, but it may not be so plain in the Greek or Hebrew. Definitions of the word Satan from the various lexicons provided in the first essay of this series discuss the use of the word, citing some of these same verses. But here we shall present it comprehensively in greater detail.
The following is an explanation of the importance of a substantive as found in both the Greek and Hebrew scriptures written by William Fink, written by me. I, I don't really remember writing this, but that's okay. I, I've written it in several you, of my commentaries. You me? Uh, no, no, no. It just surprised me to see it this afternoon because I, I think you wrote these around 2012, maybe, but I, I, these were written, I think, in 2012. I think maybe 2011, 2012. Uh, I just didn't remember it at all. I've done a lot of stuff, I guess. <laughs> the no Satan advocates, the no Satan advocates love to proclaim that the word Satan, a Hebrew word found at Strong's dictionary number 7854 in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew section is merely an adjective. And, and it is, they're right. Satan by itself is just an adjective. Ostensibly, they are correct. And Satan by itself is an adjective and appears as such several times in the Greek New Testament used in such a manner. In, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, in, in Mark 16, verse 23, in, 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 um, I'm sorry, in, in Matthew 16, verse 23, in Mark chapter 8, verse 33, and, and in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 12, verse 7, that there I think Paul said something about a, a messenger of Satan. I, I really don't remember. I should have copied out those citations. But that's not important because we, we will explain why it's not always an adjective. More often than not, in the New Testament, the word Satan is accompanied with the article, the definite article in Greek. Right. And this is a shortcoming to using only a concordance. Because in Strong's concordance, he did a wonderful job taking all the major words and, and telling you what Greek or Hebrew word they came from. But there are so many articles in the text I mean, you might get a hundred articles in the text of one chapter. Strong's can't, the, the work is beyond telling you where all of the articles are. That, that's beyond the purpose of a concordance. So you can't find the articles in a concordance. So you could look at Satan in, in one passage and see the same exact word as in another passage. And in one place it's used as an adjective and in another place it's used as a noun. And you might think that there's a problem with that because in the concordance, you don't see the article. So you can't see that that article makes a difference. So you need, if you really want to study, you need a lot more than just a concordance. Yes, right. The concordance does not do it for you. More often than not, in the New Testament, the word Satan is accompanied with that article. Ho Satanus. The word ho is the... That, that is the singular masculine nominative form of the definite article. Ho. The, the Satan. And it means the Satan. When you see ho satanus, it means the Satan. When an adjective or certain forms of verbs are accompanied with an article in Greek, they form an element of grammar called a substantive. According to the American Heritage College Dictionary, third edition, a substantive itself, the word substantive itself is an adjective, and it's defined substantial or considerable or independent in existence or function, not subordinate, not imaginary, real, of or relating to the essence or substance, 
essential. Having a solid basis, firm. There's a reason why this form of grammar is called a substantive. Because an adjective by itself is just a, a, a description. And that description can be applied to many different things. But when you take the article and put it with the, the description, you're referring to a definite thing that's real, that has substance. It becomes a noun. Then we have in, in our next definition of substantive, number six, in grammar, expressing or designating existence, for example, the verb to be. And then part seven, being a noun or equivalent, a word or group of words functioning as a noun. So we have an article and we have an adjective and neither of them are really nouns. But when we put them together, it's a group of words functioning as a noun. From these definitions, it may be apparent that the reason such a word or group or words functioning as a noun are called a substantive is because they represent something not imaginary, something real. While Satan is merely an adjective, ho satanus, the Satan, functions as a proper name, a noun describing a tangible physical entity. Here it must be, it must be illustrated that ho satanus is not the only substantive used in the New Testament. There are many others, right? And actually, the foremost among them are ho curios and ho christos. Ho curios, the word curios is an adjective. It's not a noun. It's an adjective describing someone or something having power or authority. <clears throat> A definition of a word that is curios is the common use of the word. That's the, the, the definition that has authority. That's what the word means. A person that's a curios is a lord or a master. But ho curios means the lord, a particular lord or a particular master. And therefore it becomes a noun. And it's the same thing with ho christos. Christos is an adjective. That's the word we get Christ from. It's only an adjective. It means anointed. anointed yeah. If I take a vial of oil and pour it on your head, you are now Christos. I've anointed you. <laughs> that's the word that's used. And the, and the verb, creo, is to anoint, right? Mm -hmm. So if I creo you, you are Christos. You're anointed. That's the way Greek functions. But... Ho Christos means the anointed, and it's often translated as the anointed one because it refers to a definite individual. Mm -hmm. So Christ, Christos is an adjective. If, if Ho Christos isn't a definite Christ, then there's no Satan, but there's no Christ either. And if Ho Curios isn't a reference to a definite Lord, then there's no Lord. So if Ho Christos is a definite Christ and Ho Curios is a definite Lord, then Ho Satanus has to be a definite Satan. And Satan has to exist or Jesus don't exist.
<laughs> it, it's that simple. These people are, are are absolutely crazy for claiming that there's no Satan when that word ho satanus refers to a definite entity over and over again in scripture. So the foremost among the substantives in the New Testament are ho curios and ho Christus, the Lord, the Lord, and the Christ. Phrases generally translated in that manner in the King James Version. But curios is a Greek adjective. Liddell and Scott, the Greek, the ninth edition of the Greek English lexicon by Liddell and Scott defined curios of persons. It means having power or authority over being supreme, and of things it means authoritative, or decisive, or important, and of times it means ordained, or appointed, or legitimate, or lawful, or proper, or even real. But then, when you add the Greek article to curios, Liddell and Scott say that as of substantive, ho curios means lord or master. <laughs> And they even explain in their ninth edition of their lexicon that ho curios equals the Hebrew Yahweh in the Septuagint. And that it's used of Christ in the New Testament. So it is evident that with the article, curios becomes a noun. And in the Septuagint, as well as in the New Testament, it is a proper noun used as a title for both Yahweh and for Yahshua Christ. And Christos is also a Greek adjective, which Liddell and Scott define as to be rubbed on, used as ointment or salve, or of persons anointed, meaning that they were rubbed on. They were rubbed on with oil. And this term was used especially of the kings of Israel. It's in 1 Kings chapter 24. It's in Psalm 17. Or in the plural, it was used of the patriarchs, of the ancient children of Israel. In Psalm 104.15, for example. In the New Testament, Ho Christos is the equivalent of the Messiah, the anointed one in Hebrew. In the Gospel of Matthew, Ho Christos Curio, the anointed Lord meaning Christ come in the flesh. He's Lord and he's anointed. In the Gospel of Luke, it becomes the proper name of Jesus, Ho Christos or Yesu Christos. Jesus Christos is Jesus Christ. So it becomes a proper name used of Christ in the Gospel. Now, it should be fully evident that Satanus and Curios and Christos are all adjectives, but all of them are nouns when they are accompanied with the Greek article. Speaking grammatically, if one denies the existence of a tangible Satan, one must also deny the existence of a tangible Lord and a tangible Christ. One cannot accept the existence of Hokurios and Hokristos as proper nouns in Greek and then deny the existence of Hosatanus without contradicting oneself. Yet this is exactly what the No Satan crowd does continually. They contradict themselves and their Bibles every time they deny the existence of a tangible adversary, of a tangible Satan. And other substantives, which are used as synonyms describing Satan, are ho diabolus, 
And diabolus is an adjective, but which basically means slanderer. But ho diabolus is a particular slanderer. It becomes a proper noun. Well, the, the word diabolical comes from diabolus, yes. But that's translated in the King James as the devil. Ho antichimonus and, and ho antichriston, that the, the false accuser, the opposition is ho antichimonus, and, and the antichrist is ho antichristos. That, that's an adjective too, antichristos, the unanointed, I guess. <laughs> the, the King James Version translates ho diabolus as the devil, as a noun. But there's another word translated devil in the King James, and that's dahimonion or demon. And, and that signifies a spirit being or an inferior deity. And, and that's part of the, the, the um, sad confusion of the King James Version of the Bible, that they took diabolus and dahimonion, which is slanderer and, and demon, and translated them both as devil, and that causes some confusion. Even though they both qualify as devils, what one is a, an embodied devil and the other one's a disembodied devil, but they should, be, they should have been distinguished in, in the translations, and, and they weren't. The no-Satan crowd often attempts to reproach adherence to two-seed-line doctrine for teaching that Satan is a singular supernatural being ruling over the evil world. But that position is held by adherents of Judeo-churchianity and not by two-seed-liners, at, at least not by these two-seed-liners, meaning Clifton and myself. As the term ho Christos often refers to the anointed as a group, meaning the believing Christians of the children of Israel, the term ho satanus or the Satan often refers to all of those people who descended from those rebels mentioned in Revelation chapter 12, who I believe were the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis chapters 2 and 3, of which is the serpent which seduced Eve. And they are responsible for all of the bastardized and non-Adamic races in the world, and foremost among these today are both the Jews and the Arabs, who are really closer than kissing cousins, that the only difference between them is that whether or not they're... Technically, a Jew is an Arab. Right. A, a Jew is an Arab. Esau, all throughout the Old Testament, that the Edomites lived amongst the Ishmaelites, and especially the Nabataeans. Who, who dwelt at Petra, right alongside at Mount Seir, right alongside the Edomites, and, and Esau mingled his seed with all all of those um, Arab people. So technically, Jews are Arabs, and these collectively are the Satan, the opposition. The parable in Matthew chapter thirteen of the wheat and the tares, along with its explanation fully supports the, the veracity of this interpretation of Scripture, that the Jews, being Satan, they are the princes of this world. And that was used in the plural by Christ, the princes of this world, and by Paul of Tarsus. And they have much control over nearly all of our governments, commerce, religious and social institutions. And, and that alone should prove this interpretation of Scripture is correct. Anybody with eyes to see can see that. They, they can 
completely control monetary throughout the world. Right. And, and they have for a long, long time. It and control, it control money and... They were clipping coins in Rome. At this point, let's take a perspective look at the name Satan. While Ho Satanus is the nominative case, and it is the nominative case, which is the case used in the dictionary form in all of our lexicons, and our discourse concerning Greek words, or even other languages such as Latin. Whenever you look up a word in a Greek or Latin lexicon, if it's a noun or an adjective, you're looking at the nominative case. And there are other forms of that word for the different grammatical cases, what where the endings vary somewhat. But Satan appears in other cases in the New Testament, as we would expect. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20, it appears in the dative case. And in the NA27, you'll see that the, the article changes from, a, from an, a ho, which is an O with an apostrophe over it, sort of, to a to or, or a T-O, and, and not the Omicron O, but the Omega O, the long O. So it's to. So it's to satana in the dative case. And in Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, it's the genitive case, 2, T-O-U is the article for the genitive case. The masculine singular article is T-O-U, that's 2, Satana. So it's the, the, you could tell the case easier by looking at the article than you can by looking at the word for Satan. In Mark 3.23, without the articles, we see a construction, Satanus Satanen Ekbalain, which is of Satan, Satan to cast out. In other words, of Satan to cast out Satan, right? The genitive and accusative cases there identify the subject and the object of the verb, but they're both Satan. These are all normal grammatical constructs which are necessary in their various contexts. So if you're looking at an interlinear, you might see ho satanus in one place, tu satanus in another place, and, and, and if you don't understand the, the, the forms of the article in the various cases, you might get a little confused, right? It's normal for lexicographers to list words using the nominative singular. And Strong's concise lexicon surely doesn't have the space to list all 24 forms of the article. So he only mentioned the nominative singulars. If you look up the article in Strong's, you'll see three forms, which are ho, hey, and, and to, and that's masculine, feminine, and neuter in the nominative singular case. But there were 24 forms of the Greek article. Yeah, right. So that, that, if you don't understand Greek through lots of practice, you're, you're going to get yourself in trouble, right? But now you might want to introduce to us another um, Satan-denying sect that you found when you were researching for these papers, and, and you, you, you subtitle your description of them, Glaring Ineptness. Another no Satan <clears throat> promoter is 
an uh, entity calling himself or, or themselves the um, Christopedians or something like that. Christadelphians. Christadelphians in Longview, Texas. They can also be found on the internet, although the website has moved since uh, uh, I wrote this. The title of one of their uh, articles is The Devil Not a Personal Being, but the Scriptural Personification of Sin <clears throat> in the Manification among men. The, the devil is not a personal being, but the scriptural personification of sin in its manifestations among men. So they're saying that the devil doesn't exist. The devil is only sin personified. That's what they're saying. It's hard to tell what they're saying. <laughs> it's kind of like double talk here. Well, well one of their websites, and, and the website that you originally found for these papers doesn't exist anymore. Oh. So I went looking on the internet, and I only looked at a couple of them. I, I don't know if this Longview, Texas outfit exists or not anymore, but one of their websites is owned by a guy named Philip Launchberry, and he's in London, England. And another one of their websites is owned by Scott Stewart, and he's in, in Windsor, ca Canada. Windsor's in Ontario near Toronto. He's in Windsor, Canada. So the article that... You cited, I found, on that website in, in Canada. That's strange. At paragraphs uh, 107 and 108, uh, this entity uh, states the following, and, and uh, please take notice of his and or their uh, ridiculous uh, interpretations of Scripture. <clears throat> The temptation of Jesus is uh, usually cited as opposition to these uh, uh, got a real devil in uh, brackets here uh, conclusions. It is supposed that this uh, inconsistency proves the personality and power of the Bible devil. The great feature of the uh, narrative relied upon uh, is the application of the word devil uh, to the tempter, but uh, this proves nothing. If Judas could be a devil and yet be a man, uh, John 6, uh, 70, uh, why may the tempter of Jesus not have been a man? So, so they're, they're, they're big mistake here, right? They're saying that the narrative of, of Christ being tempted in the wilderness doesn't prove that there's a real devil. But if Judas can be a devil and yet be a man, they don't understand how Judas could be a devil and yet be a man. They don't understand it. There's a difference. There are differences between the races. That Judas is a devil because of his race. He being from southern Judea, from the lands that the Edomites lived in. 
was, he was a, an Edomite. He was a genetic devil. Right. And they don't understand that. They're blind. They think that they're making their determinations based on their belief that all men are the same. So no man could be a devil. Born, born from the womb was a devil. But if the flesh is the devil, then all men are devils. Then any man can be a devil. That's that. That's the argument. That yeah. that's the fallacy of the argument of of the of, of the no Satan people. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm trying to point to you where you left off, Cliff. What about uh, uh, taking him to, to the pinnacle of the temple? It is asked, does it not require um, something more than human power to carry a man through the air to the top of a temple? Steeple, rather. <clears throat> if this was what happened, it would uh, doubtless be a little difficult to explain, but this is not so. The pinnacle of the temple, as we are informed by Josephus, was the elevated court or promenade, which uh, on one side overlooked the depths of the valley of Jehoshaphat uh, to a depth of 200 feet and offered the uh, facility for a self destruction which the tempter asked Jesus to wantonly brave on the strength of the promise made in reference to the uh, inevitable suffering inevitable suffering to this court the tempter doubtless walked with Jesus and made uh, the vain proposal suggested by the circumstances do you want me to finish? Did you want to go on further there? The, the objector will then point to Christ's conveyance to a high mountain, from which the devil showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. It is obvious that this must be taken in a limited sense. This is their argument, right? For the fact of descending a mountain to see what was to be witnessed shows that the field of vision was in proportion to the altitude. The tract of a country seen would be Judea and neighboring provinces. The offer of power would therefore relate to these. If it be contended that Christ was absolutely and miraculously shown, quote-unquote, all the kingdoms of the world, what shall be alleged as the reason for the tempter ascending and elevation to show him then? This would have been no assistance to see this would have been no assistance to see all the countries on earth. If there was anything supernatural in it, there was no necessity for going up a hill at all. And, and that their, their, their arguments, I, I think, are good in, in order to show that this wasn't um, a Satan in heaven that snatched Christ up into the clouds, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we would never say that a Satan in heaven did snatch Christ up into the clouds. Well, we would never say that. The highest mountain in Israel is Mount Hermon. 
It has an attitude of about 7,336 7, feet. And from there, the horizon is nearly 105 miles away. However, mountains over 1,400 feet tall would be visible for 150 miles. And mountains 4,000 feet tall, there are a lot of them in, in, the, in the region, can be seen for 180 miles. Cyprus is easily visible, as are Syria, Arabia, and perhaps even some of the mountains in the south of Anatolia. But the point is this, that symbolically the devil was showing Christ a good portion of the Roman oikumene, enough to be representative of his power over the world at that time. Because unless you have power and influence uh, over Rome as well as Parthia, that, then you can't give all those countries to anybody. So the issue is not really whether the devil took Christ up in altitude magically or if they walked up a steep mountain. Either way, it doesn't matter. The issue is whether the claim by the devil that he controlled the world or the society at that time is true. And whether the individual was a devil or a person just like us who may have been converted and saved. And if he could not be converted, we must ask why not? Why didn't Jesus tell him that he should follow Jesus and be saved? The article is arguing against a supernatural devil. And if we agree, that doesn't mean there is not a real devil. Well, we weren't given the commission to, to uh, save these other uh, races. Well, well right. But, but if, <clears throat> if we, we agree that there's no supernatural devil that took Jesus up to the clouds to show him the whole world. But that doesn't mean there's not a real devil a tangible entity that we could look at and say, that's a devil. Like Christ looked at Judas and said, I've chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. I'll read the next paragraph of your citation for you. These people argue, but who was the devil who thus busied himself to subvert Jesus from the path of obedience? The answer is, it is impossible to say positively who he was. As in the case of Job's Satan, we can only be positive as to who he was not. Various probabilities are suggested by the circumstances of the temptation, according to the phase in which they are contemplated. Some think the devil in the case was Christ's own inclinations. But this is untenable in view of the statement that when the devil had ended all temptation, he departed from him for a season. In other words, they're admitting it couldn't just be his feelings or his flesh, because the devil departed from him for a season. It is also un untenable in the view of the harmony that existed between the mind of Christ and the will of the Father. It has been suggested from the fact that the tempter had power to allot the provinces of the Roman world, that he was a leading functionary of state or the Roman emperor himself. That's not necessarily true. Well, uh, it's like uh, Herod the Great. He, is, uh, he was considered a devil. Uh, right. Right. Herod was the great dragon yeah. in, in Revelation chapter 12. They tried to slay the Christ child. Yeah. That can only describe Herod. So this could have been that this 
And and the and the Arabs go back to the Edomites. The, this tempter of of Christ could have been a Herod. It could have been one of the Sadducees. It could have yeah. been one of the high priests. It could have been like Herod, you know. Right. Yeah. It could have been some <laughs> Jewish banker. <laughs> we'll never be able to answer this. It may have been a spiritual demon that compelled Christ. I don't think so, but it may have been. We can't say that's not possible. But my bet is that just like the devil in Job was walking up and down on the earth, this devil was a devil in shoe leather. Yeah. But that doesn't mean all men are devils because Christ told his apostles, I've chosen you 12 and one of you is a devil. And if all men sin and fall short of the glory well, of God, that, we're not devils just because we sin. That's kind of insinuating that uh, you're either, that you're, some are genetic de devils and some, some, some aren't uh, genetic devils. This citation closes. Others have contended that not the Roman emperor, who wasn't a genetic devil, but the angel controlling his position could say concerning all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. These are delivered unto me and to whomsoever I will give them. A fourth suggestion has been that the temptation took place in a vision or trance. But Christ was hungry for 40 days in the desert. And the devil departed from him for a time to return to him later on and persecute him some more later. And that's when he was crucified. I, I, I mean, the devil departed from him for a season. That implies a temporary departure. This individual was a devil. That's We, we could say that with certainty. And the devil is a tangible, real being. And we can say that with certainty. We find in scripture that the devils are genetic corruptions, which are satanic, because all genetic corruptions are adversaries to God. That's why a bastard will never enter the congregation of the Lord. <laughs> Perhaps you want to... Um, I thought you might want to continue right here. At uh, paragraph 44, uh, this same No Satan writer states uh, this about Job. But you say, uh, what about the uh, calamities of tempest and disease that befell Job? Was it in the power of the, of a mortal man to control these. The answer uh, is these were God's doings and not the adversaries. Thou, thou movest me against him to destroy him with, without cause. Chapter uh, 2, uh, verse 3. This is the language in which God describes Satan's uh, transaction in the matter. It was God who uh, inflicted the calamities at the adversary's instigation. It is Job's view of the case. <clears throat> Have pity uh, upon me, O ye my friends, 
say he, the hand of God hath touched me, chapter 19, verse 21. Uh, and the narrator is concluding the book says, uh, then came there unto him all his brethren, and they bemoaned him and confronted him over all of the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Chapter uh, 42. 42, verse 11. <clears throat> oh, yeah, okay. But even supposing the adversary uh, had actually uh, wielded a power that affected Job, that would not no more prove him a supernatural agent than uh, do the uh, miracles achieved by Moses prove him to have been uh, no man. God can uh, delegate uh, miraculous power even to to mortal man. Well, well, we would agree with a lot of this that that the devil of Job. Yeah, you know, the devil of Job showed up at the place of assembly where the sons of God were called together three times a year. And that has to be the tabernacle in the wilderness or the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the sons of God were commanded. The children of Israel mm -hmm. were commanded to assemble mm -hmm. three times a year. First at the tabernacle in the wilderness, and, and then once the temple was built, at the temple. So Job is attending one of those festivities three times a year as he's commanded to appear in a temple, and Satan shows up. So there's a Jew in the congregation. That's the way I read Job. There's a Jew in the congregation that has an issue with Job and challenges God. So God... In his permissive will, Yahweh allows the Jew to taunt Job. How many of our people today are being taunted by the devil? We have people all over the world being taunted by the devil right now. If I remember, uh, there was a storm coming along and uh, blew up all of his children away. And, oh, yeah, right. And, 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 uh, and you have to wonder about some of the weather today. Yeah, right. Yeah, you, you know, the, the the things that happened to Job seem to be supernatural. And we may not be able to explain them, but it was Yahweh's permissive will that allowed this devil to taunt Job. And Job was being tested and challenged. And, and we have all experienced, not with, with the... Not not the exact things that Job has experienced, but all of us at one time or another have been tempted by adversaries. What we've all been in court at one time or another, or we've all been sued, or our businesses we've threatened to be sued at one time or another, or, or we've gotten in trouble with the law at one time or another. And and I really believe that that those temptations are, are tests of our faith. And Job was was tested his faith was tested and job prevailed in his test because he never cursed god he was humble and he never cursed god 
and all of his friends, Job never justified himself. And all of his friends tried over and over again to get Job to justify himself, to say, I don't deserve this. And Job never did that. He never cursed God. He never justified himself. And he was he was deemed righteous in the end. And, and he was restored. But this devil, we would agree that it's not a supernatural being, but that it's a tangible devil. The devil was found doing what? Walking to and fro on the earth. That's what devils do today. That's what devils do today, right? Devils that, that <laughs> lawyers and bankers walking to and fro to the earth, seeing what they might devour. The devil was walking to and fro on the earth, and that's the curse that Yahweh put on Cain to be a vagabond in the earth. The devil was walking to and fro in the land, is how I would read that passage. And that's the curse of Cain. And and who's walking in, in an ancient agrarian society? Who's walking to and fro in the land? Merchants and usurers and, and panderers. Well, you go to the Jewish shop, uh, and, and nine chances out of ten, uh, there, there's devils walk, walking around in that Jewish shop. What we can't out, what we can't rule out the possibility of demons. In the New Testament, there are spirit beings called demons, and and the Satan deniers usually also deny that demons are tangible spiritual entities with their own personalities. The Satan deniers deny demons as well. All, all of the Satan deniers that I've encountered. Now, why would Enoch say, exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers? Why would he say that? There, there we have two groups being referred to. The spirits of bastards, which I interpret to be the demons that we see in the New Testament period, and the sons of the watchers, which are the, to me, the non-Adamic people, the seed of the serpent, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they're the sons of the watchers, that they're the sons of the fallen angels. All the bastards living in the flesh are the sons of the watchers. Collectively, they are Satan, and individually, each one of them is a Satan or a devil. A demon. Well, right. They're demons as soon as they're disembodied. <laughs> okay. But whether or not a disembodied, whether or not a disembodied demon strove with Christ in the wilderness, or an embodied demon, it's immaterial. The entity that strove with Christ in the wilderness had its own personality, and it had the degree of control over the governments of the world, which it boasted of. And Christ did not argue with his own flesh. How could he give himself control of the governments of the world if he worshipped himself? Especially since he is Yahweh God in the flesh in the first place. That would make no sense. So the devil can't be a flesh. The devil has to be an entity separate from the flesh, a tangible, real entity. The Satan deniers, that they just cause a bundle of contradictions. you want to move on to the next part of your paper? I will not demonstrate again why those, why these uh, no Satan advocates 
interpretations of scripture cannot be trusted. Quoting again from Krista uh, uh, Delphi, Delphian No Satan Entity Paragraphs 24 through 26, it will be seen that the scripture allusions to, to fallen angels afford no uh, countenance whatever to be the idea that there was a rebellion in heaven under the leadership of Satan resulting in the expulsion of the rebels and the establishment of the universe in the universe of a great of a great antagonism of God having its center and its headquarters in the hell of a popular creed. <clears throat> uh, superficial believers in the Meltonic uh, antecedents of the Prince of Darkness, uh, quote, Revelation uh, 12, 7, and, and proof of them. Let, let, let me clarify what's going on here, right? It, it's, um, they're saying that it will be seen, and, and they're basically denying the scripture here. It will be seen that the scripture, scriptural allusions to the fallen angels afford no countenance to the, to whatever the idea that there was a rebellion in heaven under the leadership of Satan. But Revelation chapter 12 tells us exactly that it was a rebellion in heaven under the leadership of an individual Satan. <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily mean uh, out in the uh, starry heavens. or the, Right. Uh, it doesn't necessarily indicate that Satan was... It could was be a, a, high, a high society. Right. Exactly. It could be a, 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 a civilization here on earth with a godly government. And, and there was a rebellion. It could be a lot of things. Now, they, they disclaim this, that this rebellion resulting in the expulsion of the rebels. And the establishment in the universe of a great antagonism to God. And, and they're, they're disclaiming that, even though it says that specifically in Revelation chapter 12. <laughs> and then they say, having its center and headquarters in the hell of popular creed. But we don't claim that Satan and his, his fellow rebels have their center and headquarters in hell. Who claims that? So, so they go on to, to, um, to describe superficial believers in the Miltonic antecedents of the Prince of Darkness, and that's a reference to the poetry of John Milton, the poet of the, the, yeah. the English Reformation that wrote Paradise Lost and Paradise Regained, and, and he was a poet. He, 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 the, he, Milton is not scripture, but they're citing Milton as if Satan believers, believers in a literal Satan, follow Milton instead of scripture. So, so that's a false argument. That's a straw man argument right there. We don't care what John Milton says. I mean, I read Milton, but I don't care what he says about the scripture. That's not where my ideas come from. My ideas come from the scripture. 
So, so they're going on to quote, and, and I'll, um, I'll finish this if you want. They're going on to quote the, the scripture that they're denying. And, and they say, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, not into hell. And his angels were cast out with him. You go on and quote their, the last paragraph that you cite from this article. You say, surely, well, they say, surely those who quote this to prove a rebellion in heaven before Adam must stagger a little. And, and I don't know why they think they're going to upset us for this argument. When it is pointed out to them that it describes something that was to happen after the days of John. And that's really where they trip themselves up right there. They're trying to say that Revelation 12, that the whole thing has to be future to John. And they say the things seen by John in Revelation were representative of events future to his time. This is evident from Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And, and they're taking it out of context, right? Come up hither and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Well, well that did happen in chapter 4. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same context in chapter 12 when it's an entirely different vision. Hence, how absurd, they say, to quote any of his descriptions as applicable to an event alleged to have occurred before the creation of the world. And, and that, that's absolutely ridiculous and, and their their argument that all of Revelation 12 has to happen in the future is ridiculous and, and before we present the rest of, of this citation and your response to it I, I want to add a couple of things when you give your own conclusion here a little later on you will prove this to be wrong in a couple of different ways but for now I, I will say that if this is true what is the reference to that old serpent in Revelation chapter 12, who was the dragon which stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for her to de for to devour her child as soon as it was born. That's and, referring to her, the great standing before Christ. Right. And, and you mentioned that a little later, and, and we'll discuss it a little later. But another mistake which they make is this, and, and I just pointed it out. Why do they get their Christianity from Milton? He was a poet and a theologian. But writing, in his writing, poetic license often trumped sound theology. Where does it say in scripture that Satan and his fellow rebels have set up headquarters in the hell of popular creed? It doesn't say that anywhere in scripture. The devil in Job was walking up and down in, in the earth. The devil in Job was walking up and down in the land. Just as his ancestor Cain was sentenced to be a vagabond in the earth. Paul of Tarsus, before the fall of Jerusalem, explained that Satan was sitting in a temple in Jerusalem. He wasn't in hell. He was sitting in a temple in Jerusalem. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He was sitting in a temple in Jerusalem pretending to be a god. At Paul's time, Paul was using the present tense. All the verbs in that description are in the present tense. After the fall of Jerusalem, in Revelation, in the Revelation later given to John, in chapters 2 and 3, in the message to the seven churches, 
we find a message to Pergamus. Now, this is given to John 30-something years after the fall of Jerusalem. No, I'm sorry, 20-something years after the fall of Jerusalem. I think it's about 22 or 24 years. According to all of the ancient church fathers, John recorded the revelation at Patmos and after his after he was free to leave Patmos and go back to Ephesus, he wrote it down. And it was the early part of the ninth century the ninth decade AD, ninety something AD, when John wrote this down in Ephesus. And John says that Satan's seed had moved to Pergamus. So oh, that's right, yeah. Before Jerusalem fell, Satan's seat was in the temple of Yahweh. And according to Paul of Tarsus, and after Jerusalem fell, Satan's seat was in Pergamus, according to Jesus Christ in the revelation given to John. So after Jerusalem fell, Satan picked up and moved camp to Pergamus. Satan was never his, the center of his empire was never in hell. It was in Jerusalem and then it was in Pergamus. And from there we can trace Satan to Spain and to Portugal. And from there we could trace Satan to Florence and to Naples. And from there we could trace Satan, ultimately to Frankfurt, to Amsterdam, to London, and to New York. <laughs> and we know exactly where Satan is now. <laughs> Today Satan has offices all over the world <laughs> and synagogues in every city. <laughs> I don't know what's so hard about this. <laughs> it's right in front of our faces. I'll read the, um, well, well, you might want to read your response to that. One should now begin to uh, comprehend more and more that uh, those holding the uh, concept of no Satan, uh, the, uh, the tragedy lacking in the scholarship and insight of scripture for which we are instructed to uh, study to show thyself approved unto Yahweh a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Did you want me to go on there? Yeah, keep going. Second <clears throat> Timothy 2.15 In order to prop up their errant uh, supposition, they break all the grammatical rules in Hebrew, Greek, and English. Also, their uh, wayward manner, they uh, subvert the context of nearly all of Holy Writ uh, by assuming an untenable position. They go so far as accusing Yahshua himself of being Satan, thinking they are doing the Almighty a favor they are scattering the sheep rather than gathering. They refuse to identify the enemy by trying to make Israel believe uh, their only enemy is their own flesh. <clears throat> you could read your um, your final conclusion if if you want. I, uh, I'll, let let me say first that. You said that this clearly shows that these no Satan propagators don't understand 
that Christ himself said that he had witnessed the fall of Satan. That's right in Luke chapter 10. Christ said, I saw Satan fall. That had to be past tense. He used the past tense. Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't give John the revelation for another 50 or 60 years. What, where, where does the, the, the fall of Satan in a war in heaven is described? So 50 or 60 years before that, Christ already said, I saw Satan fall in the past tense. And then you said, neither does this Christadelphian no Satan character understand that the woman which Satan in the person of Herod stood before was Israel in the person of Mary. Also a past event at the time of John's revelation. Where the great red dragon stands before the woman to... to to, to kill her child. That's a description of Herod, Herod. trying to kill all the infants to, to kill the Christ. To kill the Christ child. Christ was already born when he well, gave the revelation it's, it's to John. It's interesting because Herod comes from an Edomite family. Well, well right. So he, he is a perfect representative of, of the great dragon. The great red dragon. And, and Mary comes from an Israelite family, and she's the perfect representative of Israel, the woman. And the child has to be Christ. Who else could it be? Now, Christ was already born when he gave the revelation to John. Yet in Revelation chapter 12, it says of the woman, and she brought forth a man child who was, and this is the important part, because this child that the great red dragon tried to slay, was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. So Revelation 12 has to be describing a past event. If it's not describing a past event, then there are two Christs. Who else is to rule all nations with a rod of iron? Who else is to be caught up to the throne of God? That was a prophecy in the Psalms of Yahshua Christ, which the apostles had pointed out many times that it was he who was sitting at the right hand of the Father. So Revelation chapter 12 had to be in the past. It couldn't be future to John's time. These Christadelphian apostates have no idea what they're talking about. Or we're waiting for another child to be born to be caught up to the throne of God. So Christ is in Christ. If they are right, then Christ is in Christ. If we are right, there is a Satan. If Jesus Christ is that child, then there has to be a Satan. And they're wrong. We're going to do more work on this paper. We're going to go after these Christ and Delphine. Herod the Great was the uh, one that was... uh to persecute the woman to bring forth the man child. That can only describe him. The child can only describe Yahshua Christ. Only he is caught up to the throne of God. So this Revelation chapter 12 is has to be describing something that happened in John's past, not in his future. You, you may want to read your conclusion. <clears throat> when one should now begin to comprehend more and more that those holding the concept of no Satan are tragically lacking in scholarship and insight of scripture for which we are instructed, study to show thyself approved unto Yahweh, 
a workman that is that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. To Timothy uh, 2.15. In order to prop up their errant supposition, they break all the grammatical rules in Hebrew, Greek, and English. Also their wayward manner, they subvert and uh, the context of nearly all of Holy Writ. <clears throat> By assuming an untenable position, they go so far as accusing Yahshua himself of being Satan. Thinking they are doing the Almighty a favor, <clears throat> they are scattering the sheep rather than gathering them. They refuse to identify the enemy by trying to make Israel believe their only enemy is their own flesh. Judeo-churchanity personified. Right, absolutely. They, they turn us, if you believe your enemy is your own flesh, you're turned to individualism and concerned about how you could save yourself. And being individualistic, you're going to abandon the community of Christ, which we should be devoting our lives to. We shouldn't be worried about saving ourselves because we're all saved. But if Satan is your enemy, if the flesh is your enemy, you're going to be forever wrapped up in yourself and, and wrapped up in, in worries about your individual salvation. And, and that creates individualism and isolates people from one another. Well, when Christ uh, was crucified, he purchased us all back. Uh, none accepted. No exceptions. Absolutely. Thanks for this tonight. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And we'll do this again soon, maybe next month. Yahweh bless. Good night. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and the eternal, eternal enemy of Satan, which is the Jews and every other bastard. <laughs>